1: Pushkin. Pushkin.
2: This is a tough city to love. This is a city that hurts you. And to to be in love with it is like being in an abusive relationship sometimes.
3: That's how I feel in the relationship with you.
2: I hope not, I hope not. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin.
3: We're two best friends, one black, one white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Yeah, so here we are back with season two. We are going to be talking about everything from politics to pop culture. And we're going to have guests on too this season. History always matters in everything we cover. And of course, this is an election year. We got midterms. We're going to be talking on this show in the midst of the launch of the presidential race. So there's going to be so much to figure out and to invite so many best friends, some old, some new, to help us make sense of the madness of the moment we're still living in.
2: So today's episode is really special. Khalil, we got to do a live taping
3: together in our hometown. The boys are back in town. (laughs) We went back to where it all began. (laughs) That's right. So...
2: It was uh, actually on September 11th, yep. and it was a crazy rainy day. There was a
3: torrential rain. It was also the Bears' home opener. Uh, I remember yes. that we got caught in some traffic. Monsoon conditions. But you know what they say about rain, like, you know, and rain for weddings is, is like a good sign. It's a sense of renewal, of promise, of, of like a, a fresh start. I felt that way. Perfect metaphor. We did the taping as part of the Chicago Humanities
2: Festival and we got to talk at this amazing venue the south shore cultural center you know which we both spent time in as kids right this just beautiful space that we sat in like a glass atrium just about a block from lake michigan you know even on that rainy day once it cleared like the sun started to come in and just the space itself felt magical
3: it's a place where for many decades, uh, some of Chicago's elite Southsiders would go there to play golf, and you know it, it was not a place that was actually welcoming to everyone. But it is today, and that's what's so important about the Chicago Humanities Festival hosting it there, and for you and I to be in that space to not only talk about what it means to be Chicagoans, but to do it with our own hometown community—very special. So let's cut to the live tape. I mean. Here we are in reality, but let's go to the recording. Let's do it. Just to place this uh, moment in context, we're here at South Shore Cultural Center. I mean, I remember walking by here as a kid. I literally spent my earliest years at 69th and Oglesby, which is four blocks from where we are, just across the street at a place It was a nondescript apartment building, but I went to a nursery uh, pre-K place called Toddler's Inn. Um, So Ben. Yeah, I grew up in in South Shore, so I grew up not too far from here and,
2: and played tennis here when it was still, it was called the South Shore Country Club, but wasn't really a country club anymore. And actually people from my neighborhood helped preserve it and then restore it. There was sort of a a discussion about what would happen, what what its next iteration would be, and here we are.
3: Yeah, no, Um, it looks great. You know, here we are in
2: Chicago, and we're in a city that's demonized all the time, and that has all sorts of population changes going on. And even with a, a mayoral race, you know, heating up, there's so many discussions about the city in its present form and its future. And so this question of like, well, what does it mean to be a Chicagoan? What is a Chicago identity? And a way to come at that is just to talk, at least at the start of like what it means to us.
3: Yeah, yeah. So our producers of the show often tell us like, our listeners only care so much about Chicago. Uh, so since we're here, we get to lean into that a yeah. little bit and actually talk about our origin story.
2: Yeah, so let's start with a,
3: a Chicago, What are, what is your Chicago origin story? Yeah. How did you get here? Yeah, So so you heard I teach at Harvard, which is, you know, what you think it is, really snobby and arrogant and this sort of thing, but a lot of smart students. Hey, everybody. That's how long it took him to mention Harvard. Like, that is
2: the, that's the longest so far. I, I, it's a guarantee,
3: there it is. Whatever, whatever. So, so I, (laughs) it, it, it came up because I was teaching just this week and we were talking about the fact that I happen to be um, a third-generation Chicagoan. Uh -uh. Um, So my parents were born here. Shorty Ruff, by the way, for a listener, sends her regards. This is my mother's nickname as a a tough customer. Um, My mother was born here, her mother was born here, and that's the third generation. And so it happens, my great-grandmother, Laura Oliver, um, married in the 1920s, a man named Eugene Gavin. Who, this is this is your mother's side of the family? This is my mother's side of the okay. family, who migrated from Mississippi. They both migrated from Mississippi. They could not marry there, but they married here in the 1920s. And so I take a measure of pride of actually being basically descendants of people who got here at the turn of the century, or not quite the turn of the century, but in the 1920s, and therefore the early Great Migration. Yeah, so you you have a lot of roots here. A Lot okay. of roots. So, I was born here,
2: and my parents, who were in the audience, moved. Wave, wave
3: Austins, yes.
2: (laughs) They moved to Chicago in their early 30s. Uh, My father got a job at the University of Chicago, so they're, they, you know, I'm, I guess I'm like, does that make me a first generation? You're a first gener. And, and they stayed. You know, they moved here and stayed, which is another sort of, you know, cities are about are measured in some ways by their um, you know, their, their ability to attract people and attract business and then to retain them. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, you're talking about the black migration and, you know, before that, uh, to, you know, the beginning of the 20th century and, and even before immigrants from Europe uh, and in the 1990s, uh, so many people from Mexico who moved here, and you know, to the point that uh, Latinos are a third of the population now.
3: Do you have some Latino heritage? This is the first no, no, I'm, hearing just, of... I'm just, uh, oh, okay, got I'm it. I'm just riffing here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah.
2: And then, and then I'd say that uh, you know, my wife and I uh, had a kind of professional walkabout where we moved all over the country and decided at some point about 10 years ago that we wanted to come back home and we wanted our kids to be raised here around our family and this is where we sort of you know we wanted to make our stand you know like when you you live in other cities there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of great freedom at times of not being rooted there where you don't have to worry so much about the messy history you don't have to own it right. and here you you have to own it but the stakes are higher
3: yeah yeah so i uh, i have moved Uh, from chicago since essentially i was 22 years old so unlike ben um, i haven't been back and i've been enjoying the city uh, by virtue of family and relatives who live here my mom lived here until quite recently her entire life had never lived literally anywhere else Uh, so i'm a little bit uh, opposite to ben in that i chose not to come back to chicago but
2: but is this a good place to make your announcement
3: (laughs) about about the return no the run for mayor yeah, yeah, well, I, <laughs> I mean, isn't, isn't everybody doing that? Want me to bring that up? Inside joke, as I said, if I ever came back to Chicago, I'd want to come back to, to be mayor. So it, this is actually <laughs> this, this is actually real talk. But but I want to say just one more thing about the other side of my family, which is more famous. Uh, and again, listeners of the show at, at least know this. So it turns out that Ben lives... Uh, today, a couple of blocks from where my great-grandfather, Elijah Muhammad, who was also a migrant from Georgia, born in 1899, arrived in Chicago um, sometime in the 1930s, um, and ultimately built the Nation of Islam, which all of you know is part of the Hyde uh, Park-Kinwood area and where Ben and Danielle's family currently live. And of course, that's another kind of Chicago story that makes not only the city, quite unique and interesting, but also makes this entire area and thinking about a Chicago identity fascinating. I mean, something yeah. we talked about uh, when we were thinking about this show. Like, where else in America could you imagine, like Muhammad Ali, Elijah Muhammad, um, Jesse Jackson, uh, eventually Michelle and Barack Obama, and Harold Washington as nodes of some of the most important political debates, movements in America. Pretty awesome. Hey, this is Khalil. We need to take a short break. We'll
1: be right back. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
4: for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. That's T-Mobile.com unconventional unconventionalawards. See you there.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
2: Welcome back to some of my best friends are, I'm doing that time space continuum thing and I'm, I'm not at the live event, but now we're gonna go back to the live event from the Chicago Humanities Festival. And, and so, so we talked about, you know, what are our Chicago origin stories, but there's a way where it, to feel like, there's also a consciousness about being a Chicago and a kind of uh, Chicago being sort of imprinted on your DNA. And and we were younger the, before people really got tattoos of like the Chicago flag or anything like that or or 312 <laughs> tattoos or 773 or oh, uh, all right all right <laughs> so you know let's talk about that moment where we really sort of started to think of of Chicago as integral to our identity
3: okay yeah. let's do it All
2: right, are you first okay for me it had to do with driving I could think of a specific moment. I think it's the summer after high school. So this is like 1989, and maybe it was 1990. And I had a job as a bagel delivery man. I remember that. And the, Didn't you just have the white pickup truck then? I had, <laughs> <laughs> See? You had, you, had to, you had to make it scary. Uh, I had a job as a bagel delivery man, and I had to get up at 5 a.m., And it was called the Bagel Nosh, and it was a bagel store on Rush Street. And Rush Street of 1989 or 1990 was sort of like in transition. That if you're older, Rush Street signifies kind of, you know, something, a red light district or sort of like kind of sleazy a little bit. And today it's pretty gentrified and, and ritzy. It was sort of both at that moment or like probably more on the sleazy side. And I'd get there at 5 a.m. and I'd have to pull in an alley behind the the shop and like flash my brights to clear out all the rats who would scurry away. (laughs) And then I would load up the truck with bagels and drive all over the city. And there was a feeling of, as a young person too, of moving through the city at a time when there weren't a lot of people there and where it felt like I kind of had ownership of the city. It felt like something out of like a Carl Sandburg poem where like this, this Goliath, which is asleep.
3: He's getting literary
2: on And, and, and here I am, you know, seeing and part of the mechanism that's going to be when it wakes. And, you know, the only other people out there were other delivery people, you know, the, the newspaper trucks and things like that and also traversing the city in a way that I hadn't before either of going through the loop, but also like the South side. And you'd have to come back on state street down the the state street corridor of where there were, you know, used to be public housing for miles. And I just felt like I got a better understanding of the city of being a part of it, of its geography and its segregation. And, um, yeah, I felt, I felt at that point, like, like a kind of pride of, of place.
3: Yeah. So, you know, people often say that you have to leave a city to actually appreciate what you've lost or what you had. And I think of this kind of consciousness, Chicago consciousness, uh, in a slightly different way. So I was about nine years old when my father moved to New York. He'd left Chicago. He'd worked at Johnson & Johnson Publishing as a photographer. He spent an entire career as a photojournalist. Uh, But he got his start um, with Johnson Publishing. And he leaves for Charlotte in 1978, lands in New York by 1980, and he's still there. So I visit him about nine years old for the first time, and uh, I'm visiting with his friends, uh, his new New York area friends who have kids. And the mom in this relationship is keeping me for the weekend, because by then my father was a bachelor, and so you know he's keeping me for the summer where I really spent a lot of childhood summers from about nine to 15 or 16. And so I meet this brood of like kids of all ages, younger than me, older than me. They welcome me into their family. And within seconds of talking to them, someone's like, you have a funny accent. I was like, what are you talking about? And they were like, you just said tan. And I was like, what, 10? They're like, no, tan. I was like, no, 10. Anyway, it was my (laughs) Mississippi accent By way of chicago that these new yorkers who were my peers as kids were picking up on and that was literally the first moment when i thought to myself holy smokes like i sound different
2: yeah yeah and so it's it's then you had to be like us and them and i'm (laughs) i'm on team us i'm on team chicago
3: well it it did make me very proud
2: this is just Did, did you did you do the thing where you then like went home and like Practice so you didn't say you said 10. Well, you know, I, I wanted to get to Harvard eventually so yeah, I had to get rid yeah. of the accent I mean, so I so I had something similar I mean, maybe everyone does who's from Chicago where you travel and maybe maybe this is even more of a white thing where other Where, where you meet people and they're like, oh, you're from Chicago I'm from Chicago and I would always call it like the double question. Yep, because the next question was where are you from, right? Not, not from Chicago, they wanna know if you're from Deerfield or... Or Winneka, uh, Or Winneka, whatever. They didn't really Mar-con. mean Chicago. Yep. And so there's also that, you know, not just defining it of another city, but of like suburb
3: or city. Right, yeah. So I wanted to talk about the first time I remember being pissed off as a Chicagoan too. And that is when I was about uh, 10 years old, I had to commute to Chatham from Regents Park where I lived by that age. And, this and, was and mostly, Regents
2: Park is an yeah, apartment Regents, building and yeah, high Park. Yeah,
3: 51st and Lakeshore Drive um, to this day. Uh, you can actually see it on a clear day from, from uh, just outside this window. And I was essentially going to this elementary school at 83rd and St. Lawrence called Dixon Elementary, and my mom just wanted continuity. So rather than me coming to go to Ray or something like that, I, I stayed going to Dixon. So I had to I catch the number one from Lakeshore Drive to Cottage Grove, and the number four, Cottage Grove from 51st to 83rd Street.
4: Deep, deep,
2: deep Chicago. Deep, Cotera.
3: deep Chicago. And I remember one winter day, it was about negative 40 degrees, uh, as was commonly true uh, back in those days, in the early 80s, when global warming wasn't what it is today. And the bus took forever to come. When it finally arrived, it was so full with people, it didn't even stop at the light. And I'll, this is a memory seared in my memory. I literally screamed out of frustration, picked up the nearest rock I could find and hurled it at the back of the bus. I mean, this is not a pride, prideful moment, yeah. but it is the moment when I thought like, this city sucks, right? <laughs> like I'm <laughs> trying to get to school and I'm freezing. So that was the story. Yeah. last one I want to tell about being a Chicagoan is, so you heard about the Schomburg Center, which is a cultural institution in Harlem, been around since the 1920s, really important place. But for anyone who's visited Harlem, has anyone visited Harlem in this audience? Okay, you know, Harlemites think that Black Harlem is the, as used to be called, the Negro capital of the world. And therefore, tremendous amounts of pride in that place. And I kind of spent, The first couple of years as the director of the Schaumburg in in 2011, kind of pushing back against that. I mean, like literally from the stage of the institution, reminding them that Harlem had never produced the political geniuses and the political greats that Chicago had produced. Going back to Oscar de Priest, who was the first black person to go to Congress after Reconstruction and that Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who of course was the famous congressman, didn't get there to 1944. And then of course, all the other stuff leading up to President Obama and all that was just gravy. But I felt very prideful in Harlem, reminding them that my city was actually better. Yeah.
2: So that makes me think that there's another way that you, you get a Chicago consciousness or that for us, like we're as professionals, we've also studied Chicago. I've, you know, written about Chicago. It's part of our work. Yep. And so maybe we just talk about that a little bit about approaching the city when it becomes an idea that you are grappling with in that way. And, and one of the things I started when as, as you so know- So
3: you ri- you've written this book, tell, tell everyone about- Well,
2: I, I, I wrote, a, my first book is about uh, public housing in Chicago, it's about Cabrini-Green, it's called High Risers. But, and, and working on it, I, I also start to think about how little Chicago as a subject was part of my education.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, was that true for you too? Did you ever have like- Yeah, no, I, this, formally, I, I, we talked about this a lot, like situating ourselves, as kids in this important city we don't remember like being taught about this first black mayor in the moment and the significance of that as something transformational both for the national politics but also for the meaning of the city itself even though we literally lived you know in the same neighborhood as harold washington did
2: yeah i don't even remember like uh you know when i say remember meaning it could have happened i just wasn't paying attention (laughs) but uh being assigned books like the jungle or, uh, you know... Upton Sinclair's muckraking book, R- we all Richard, remember. Richard Wright books, you know, Native Son, uh, A Black
3: Boy, I don't remember, those were not books, that's part of the curriculum. Um, you didn't take the, uh, the African-American literature elective at Kenwood. Was that yeah. part of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. maybe, okay, yeah. see. <laughs> you, you, you were, you know, you were still wrestling with I was with still, your, I was still... ...whiteness, Jewish identity kind of thing, it was still...
2: So yeah, just it it was, not, it was not so prevalent, so I think you know part of it was like just going back and, and devouring everything, uh, studying the history of the city and the literature about the city, and like you
3: know if you're going to be a Chicago writer, like to, to l- try to learn everything about it. Yeah and I think it's something about the richness of everything we experience in a community of people nurturing us that made it possible to, to look back and later see the city as something worth. Knowing. So, for example, Ben's father was uh, University of Chicago professor emeritus. Um, we both were at Regenstein as kids, but by accident, I ended up writing about the University of Chicago in my work, because it was the first real place for the study of the city. And the study of the city as a place of immigrant assimilation, the study of the city as, quote, unquote, back then, race relations. Um, and here we were literally part of this community at products of it, and then later able to look back on it.
2: Yeah, and, and I think we write about it and other people do too, because the city is endlessly fascinating. That the the history and the present is so fraught with that history of, you know, problematic stuff and interesting things, and, and it's alive in so many ways. I mean, I think about now that there's this John Burge curriculum in the public
3: schools. Right, you want to tell them who John Burge is? John
2: Burge, the, the police officer who, you know, w- w- was, was part of a, a midnight crew and- in, in, and tortured a, a station house. 200 people. Yeah, tortured more than 100 men, black men, uh, into false confessions. And uh, as part of reparations, the, the city agreed to, to teach this curriculum. That's, that's you know, I think, I think you know, we, we've talked about this before, even on the show, when we were talking about critical race theory, that I think both of us believe Professionally and personally, that you have to engage with the really messy and difficult history of a place, and that is what is uh, you know it is you know you talked about on the bus in Chicago and hating the city. This is a tough city to love. Yeah, this is a city that hurts you, and to to be in love with it is like being in an abusive relationship sometimes. That's how I
3: feel in the relationship with you.
2: I hope not. I hope not. (laughs) Like it's dysfunctional Um, and you know, it, it's, it is all of the magnificent things and it is the, the richness of the history, which is so, so so fraught with who we are as a, a country and as a city that, that makes us an important place and a place to try to, to make it better in some ways. Yeah.
3: And I think it's fair to also think about some influences. So um, we haven't talked about this on the show, but I think it's fair to say, like your brother, Jake, Jake Austin, is here famous jake austin (laughs) and we all went to high school together jake is a couple years older than us but you know we had we had that experience we all went to kenwood and your brother was in many ways a booster for the city um long before you and i were even thinking about these issues um both as a as a zine editor and being able to describe the music scene in the city like I mean, I wasn't paying that close attention, but enough attention to know that, that this is what Jake was doing. He began writing about the city. He, he literally
2: has a TV show called Shick A Go Go. <laughs> I mean, you can't be more of a booster than that. <laughs> exactly. With a theme a theme song. Yeah. yeah. You want to sing it? No, but if in, in the <laughs> podcast version of it, this is when it would uh.
1: Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.
4: Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization. Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before. A platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies. The Cellular Vehicle to Everything Network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the Community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
0: at prdouglobal.edu
2: So so let's let's talk about a harder subject which yeah. is you know nobody really talks about Chicago now without talking about say the violence right and you know, you're either, when you even talk about being a booster, you're sort of saying there's more to the city than that, but you're actually sort of responding to it or you're engaging with it.
3: Yeah. And it really is part of every conversation yeah. here. And I wanted to, to actually pick up on a theme because you've sort of already talked a little bit about this, but a lot of the work that I do as an academic is around policing. And at one point, you know, someone asked us, uh, we met someone uh, earlier today, said, you know, like, what inspired you to do the show? And the short answer is that we had an opportunity through the Pushkin, uh, which is a company co-owned by Malcolm Gladwell, the journalist and writer, and Jacob Weisberg. But the idea of the show came because I was doing academic work on the criminal justice system I'd written about as a historian. And I was doing work with other social scientists around how to think about a different kind of policing and Ben was actually reporting on policing in the early days of Black Lives Matter, sort of the from the Michael Brown moment to the Laquan McDonald moment, and was on the ground reporting around the city about various forms of activism. Yeah. And, and talking about the tough stuff, like for us, it was not just the tough stuff and the questions about like, what's wrong with your city? But it was also about trying to answer these tough questions and to think about like, what's the future of the city? Like, is this a moment for us in different capacities to talk through what it means to solve for these problems. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I know that as a, a Chicago writer, I am trying to push against the, the, the stereotypes of the city. You know the shy image or we have a there's a republican running for governor now and he's been he's been really pushing this idea of the chicago is hellhole of sort of adopting the language it's american
3: carnage this is a version yeah,
2: of it, adopting the trump language to sort of you know he it, it's you know it's also fear of crime in chicago and sort of bail reform but it's like it's an easy uh, dog whistle and it's probably even more explicit than dog whistle um to, to rile up people yeah i did a i did a reporting uh project once, uh, not too long ago, where I went around to 20 high schools in the city. And my idea was I would interview and profile all the valedictorians of all these different high schools that that, that they're as much representative of the city and children in the city and in the public school system as either victims or perpetrators of violence. Right. And you know, in some ways, much, much more representative of you know, most students. Yeah. And you know, that was a that was thing, was great. it was an amazing thing to even just like to be inside 20 different high schools across the
3: city. Yeah. So I, I take a much shorter version of like how to defend against the negative stereotypes. And that is, I just tell people, Chicago is the greatest beach town on earth. It's beach like, town, where? where? where else can you have access to this amazing lake, like at just a crossing a bridge. It's amazing. So yes, that, that's the simple version. Yeah. But, but here we are, right? And here we are. Um, I got here on Friday and on the hour and a half drive, which was about as long as it took to fly here on the East Coast, uh, to Hyde Park, WBZ was reporting on the killing of a 17-year-old um, blocks away from our high school. He was out at lunch. A, a Kenwood High School a student. A Kenwood High School student. Middle of the student. day, 1235. Yeah. And, and also was killed in a parking lot on East End, which is the very parking lot I crossed for 10 years of my life to leave my apartment building to come to high school or to go anywhere else from my apartment. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot of just this young man. Uh, I think he just transferred to the school this year and th- this beautiful start to the school year. I've been walking around the neighborhood and seeing Kenwood students out and about playing you know football and practicing band and and lacrosse and just like just so energetic and to think to think this is life is over and and uh you know as much as i'm saying of of pushing against the stereotype and writing about other things this is a fact right it happened right and and the reverberations are real yeah people make choices at that point to leave the city to not send their kids to Kenwood High School to to get away yeah. you know why would I if that's where danger is and and then there's all the sort of like political things that happen you know in this case the school board accusing Lori Lightfoot of not keeping children safe of you know asking for more policing all these other things that we know intellectually like there's no police officer that can stop that crime. Right. You can respond to it in some way, and then you could say, like, maybe they could you know, hunt these people down, but that's, it's not a policing issue. But something, something happened that, that is both real and, and undeniable and, and really tears at the fabric of, of our community.
3: Yeah, yeah, ben, ben and I have been talking a lot about the depopulation of the city, um, and, and Ben's been doing some writing about it uh, more generally. Uh, it's personal i mean i think that's the point it's personal it's not just it's not just our neighborhood and it's not just the people who are one degree removed as you know a year ago there were a series of of just outrageous uh shootings in hyde park that we actually talked about in one of our episodes and and so here we are again many of you know my mom left the city um after having purchased a handgun for personal protection and told me you know that her her, her handgun was on its way and i'm like what are you talking about <laughs> it's like she's in her apartment on the citizen app and as far as she's concerned they're coming for her eventually and she's and so, she's got a shaky hand yeah she's got yeah she's not she should <laughs> so, not be so, handling a so firearm this, this is not good but i think you know so now she's with us but i think i think we don't want that right so the challenge for us um, as people who do get to speak on behalf of the city, whether, whether we get it right or, or wrong in terms of how we describe Chicago, the challenge for us is to simultaneously be honest about what these existential realities mean for people who live their lives here every day, and simultaneously push back against the bad ideas that push us towards a past that is not the source of the solution in this case. Yeah, yeah. So when Ben talks about policing won't save us, like we do have to re- remember that in any instance, police are reactive to violence. They, they actually, you know, un- unless we could imagine a future where there are checkpoints on every corner, which did come up in some of the conversation about what happened at the University of Chicago last year or in the 53rd Street era. Yeah. But, but as we know, that's not gonna happen and it shouldn't happen. So we have to think about what do we want in terms of an infrastructure that is healthier, that is safer, that is more about economic security for people. And not to say that those guys who killed this guy needed more money in their pockets and it wouldn't have happened. But what we're really talking about is a kind of society we live in, where guns are ubiquitous, poverty is growing, and therefore, the combination of people feeling like they're at the short end of a stick and they're operating on short fuses is something we can do something about
2: yeah yeah and I think it's not on the other hand but in moments like this we also have to, to recognize that there is some immediate need that people are hurting and they're full of fear and they need something and in the void of good ideas There'll be sort of these 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 old ideas that have been tried already and we know don't work. Right. Um, and but that there really is trauma, there's suffering, right right now. Yeah. Um, and there's 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 something, you know, devastating. And and I mean, you know, in other neighborhoods in many places, you know, it's it's you know it's 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 why you know it happens a lot. But when it's very close to home, you you see it up close. Um, Yeah, you have to recognize that.
3: Yeah. So let's leave folks with three good ideas about the future, right? (laughs) So three good ideas. One, we really do have to make sure that we give young people summer youth employment and massive recreational opportunities. Both of us had them really important because we know I'll just use the the social science research tells us uh, that kids who actually get to work at 14, put money in their pocket, kids who there's no barrier to the recreational opportunities they want or the ways to explore their own creative expression, do much better than kids who essentially have a lot of free time. Two, we want to make sure that we invest in violence interruption. Yeah. Chicago is really one of the birthplaces for this idea, but Chicago has been one of the hardest places for violence interruption to take root. It is being exported to Jacksonville, Baltimore, New York is one of the the places with the most um, significant investment in violence interruption. And so one of the things that we know, we don't know, we still haven't learned exactly what set this off, but violence interrupters get ahead of it. They actually do the work that police can't do which is that they have trust within those communities, they're able to talk people off the ledge so that they're not inclined to use violence because as public health experts say, violence is a disease and it is contagious. And once you catch it, you are much more likely to express it. So those two ideas about investing in our young people, as well as investing in actual things that work to keep people from killing people, to me are very productive and it's no reason why Chicago can't invest in those rather than continuing to have a conversation in this next mayoral race about how much policing, how much more policing.
2: Yeah, and, and we're reminding ourselves that I was talking about the, the, the governor's race and when, when the Republican candidate called Chicago a hellhole, there was a, an online sort of social media response of, you know, post something about Chicago that it's, you know, conflicts with that, that shows its beauty and don't just show the skyline and you know this is a place full of love and this yep. is a place full of beauty yep. and those things are not erased they're they're side by side with a lot of the problems but they're, they're they're not they're not they're not gone they're always here too
3: yeah so you know we usually sign off the show in the way that most people know and i think we're going to do the same yeah. but i want to add to that that not only did i love you man but i love this city uh i love you and i love this city too all right <laughs> <laughs> Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's
2: produced by John Asante and Lucy Sullivan. Our editor is Jasmine Morris. Our engineer is Amanda K.
3: Wong. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song,
2: Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com.
3: You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you
2: like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. On this episode, we have to give a special thanks to the Chicago Humanities Festival for bringing us together and letting us speak at their amazing event.
3: That's right. And we also need to thank Jake Austin, your brother, my brother, and the Goblins for letting us use their music on this episode.
2: Man you can watch Chicago go online look it up on YouTube and uh you know definitely listen to the music Chicago go Wait, wait. So on the show that we recorded in Chicago, you said that your great-grandfather and your great-grandmother couldn't get
3: married in the South. Yeah, man. How come they couldn't get married? Well, what I forgot to say is that my great-grandfather was basically a white dude and basically makes it... Wait, when you say, when you say bas- what's, what does basically a white <laughs> well, dude mean? How well, is that? Well, he, he, he looked white. He was white presenting and his siblings passed as white. So basically, his whole family considered themselves white.
2: Dude. You you are talking about like running for office in Chicago or in Illinois, and you could pull this Barack Obama shit of being like my my great white great grandfather. Like you got to use that. You got to use that. You can't. You got to like put that forward. Like that is power uh, here. Like you got You could have yeah, both. So like
3: only in America can the great grandson <laughs> of a white dude from Mississippi,
2: my
1: <laughs> my white great grandfather, and my. <laughs>